Once upon a time, a wolf resolved to disguise his appearance in order to secure food more easily. Encased in the skin of a sheep, he pastured with the flock, deceiving the shepherd by his costume. I started this story with Kathy, and that's where I want it to end, because you don't know everything yet. And if this is all she gets, if that little girl will never receive true justice, the very least we can do is understand what she endured. The only way that I can honor her memory in the six short years that she was here on Earth is to tell you what really happened. I hope that if her siblings have gotten wind of this podcast and they're listening, they might have a change of heart. There were things they were not privy to as kids, like what their parents were doing behind the scenes to manipulate the perception of the public, and in some cases use them as a smokescreen to cover for their own misdeeds. They know their parents sat them down and told them what to say. There's no question that most of them know. How much they've blocked out over the years is certainly in question, but you're about to learn the extent to which some of them do know and have still vowed to keep silent. In late 2016, local law enforcement and the FBI began getting information from multiple family members after Anna and Robert's daughter Joy, who you'll remember had not even been born when Kathy disappeared, contacted them about her death, as well as the death of another child. After hearing from her, Portia Davidson, Kathy's mother, went to the Dallas, Texas FBI office and reported the story that she had received secondhand from Joy, who, after a fight with her mother, where she confronted her about murdering two children, began the difficult emotional journey of coming to terms with what she knew and had heard over the previous decades. What Portia wanted was to find her daughter. She wanted some kind of closure after all these years. The crux of the story that Joy was able to get after contacting her siblings was that Kathy was dead and buried and that the trip on September 1st in 1973 had all been an elaborate ruse. That little girl had never come with them on that day. By the time the family reached Warren Dunes, Kathy Davidson was already dead and disposed of. When this bombshell first began to break behind the scenes, it burned up the phone lines between family members, most of which treated Joy with disdain and suggested that her bringing this up now was nothing but a spiteful move intended to harm their mother, who they said was innocent. Many of the people saying that knew good and damn well she was not innocent. Portia said that Joy told her she learned from siblings that Kathy was being punished at the time and had been locked in a closet. When they went to get her out, she was dead. Early on, Joy told Portia that she had heard from her siblings that Robert Davidson, Kathy's father, got rid of her body with the help of her uncle, Marvin Bobo, Anna's brother. After this initial contact from Portia, the Michigan State Police, who maintained the lead on her case, asked the FBI to assist them in locating the siblings. So the FBI began to track them down one by one. Meanwhile, Detective Doug Kill spoke with Joy. 
She told him that she believed Kathy was buried in a forest in Harvey, Illinois, because that's what her uncle Marvin Bobo had confessed to his ex-wife at one point. He had also apparently confessed to one of his other sisters that it was him who came up with the ruse involving Warren Dunes, saying, why risk going to jail for an accident? He further went on to tell her that Anna and Robert were most concerned about their youngest child, the other six-year-old, afraid that he would slip up and say something to police that they would pick up on. Joy told the detective that she didn't think her siblings would be cooperative, and she said this was all triggered when her memory came back about her adopted brother Moses from back at the house of prayer. She and her mother had been in an argument about how she was handling a situation with her own child, and at one point Joy said, How can you tell me how to raise my children when you killed two children? I imagine that was quite a moment. According to Joy, her mother came at her with a metal lamp and called her a liar. But Joy knew what she knew. So she started calling her siblings, trying to piece together her shattered memories. She said her siblings started freaking out and accusing her of being angry at their mother and trying to crucify her. What an interesting choice of words. Joy believed that her mother needed help. Her siblings told her, get yourself help. But what they don't appear to understand is that that's exactly what Joy was doing. The truth has a way of coming out, whether you want it to or not. However way it does, whether it has to burst free in a moment of epiphany or leak out through the crevices of the body trying to hold that truth back until finally it's able to hold it back no more. In that first interview with Detective Kill, Joy told police that Marvin Bobo had already passed away. She also mentioned that he had blackmailed her parents years ago, around the time that they started the House of Prayer in Micanopy. To me, this lines up with Anna's state of mind around that time, because the first recorded incident of abuse there occurred around that time, too, with Baby Kay. The House of Prayer was a powder keg from day one. Robert and Anna were essentially hiding out in Micanopy on that farm, in the old house, in which they built hiding places to secret away abused children from anyone who may come to lay eyes on their misdeeds. The Davidsons were wrapped from head to toe in religious garb, which was essentially a costume they used to distance themselves from their past. Wolves masquerading as sheep. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That story of the powder keg waiting to blow is backed up by one of the former church members, who told police about how Anna got a call one day, and later had to pull her car over because she became so upset by thinking about the call. It was Marvin Bobo on the phone that day, and he was threatening to tell police where Kathy was if they didn't give him money. It should be noted that Marvin had a drug problem for most of his life and his own issues with criminal behavior. And at that point, what he was doing was extorting money from Anna and Robert for information that he knew. The church member who backed up this story lived at the House of Prayer in Micanopy from 82 or 83 through May of 1992. She said Anna got a call from her brother Marvin from prison, and the call really upset her. 
One day, sometime later, they were driving and Anna pulled the car over and started talking almost like a confession. She said that she had killed Kathy. She'd put her in a closet and when she went back, the girl was dead. From what this woman understood, Anna was involved in disposing of the body along with Robert and Marvin. She also recalled Anna saying that they had put the body somewhere in a wooded area and it was done at night. This church member said Marvin was threatening Anna. Joy told police that she had heard Marvin had gone to police at one point, but eventually led them to the wrong burial site because he got scared that he'd also be forced to do time and he didn't want to go back to jail. She told them that her siblings all said that they would stick to their story and would not be honest with police. She said one of her brothers was around six at the time and he probably wouldn't remember, but the rest of them, they certainly would. And they had based on what they told her. Her sister clearly remembered. A horrifying piece of information came out of this interview, and it's one that brings into super clear focus the level of depravity and horror that these kids had to endure. Say what you will about adults who can't or won't talk about something that occurred from their childhood, but there is no question that some horrible shit happened in the Davidson household, and these children were forced to endure it. Kathy's stepsister, who was 14 when the incident at Warren Dunes occurred, told Joy that Kathy was put into the broom closet as punishment, and that closet door was right by her bedroom door, and she was forced to listen to Kathy scratching on that closet door all night. Eventually, the sound of the scratching stopped. When she woke up the next morning, the closet door was slightly cracked open, and Kathy was in the fetal position dead. Now take this horrifying movie-esque visual further. Ask yourself how that door was cracked open if Kathy was bound and gagged. Did another one of the kids peek in that morning or during the night, having seen and heard the same thing? How many of Kathy's step-siblings knew she was in that closet and even went to that door and opened it to check on her? and then closed it back again because they were afraid to take her out for fear of what Anna would do if they did. Now imagine that all of this happens and none of the siblings acknowledge it or talk about it for decades. Every one of them pushes it down, that memory of the sights and the sounds, and they will it into the recesses of their minds in the hopes that they can push it far enough away to make it not real. But having been tormented by the behaviors of a dysfunctional family as a child is still no excuse to continue the lie as an adult. Another one of the accounts that Joy heard from her siblings, and it will be later backed up by another statement that I'll read to you, is that Marvin came into the house and saw Anna and Robert trying to revive Kathy in the bathroom, but she was already dead. Marvin came up with the idea about pretending Kathy was missing, figuring that if they called police, Anna and Robert would go to jail for child abuse. They were convinced that Robert would lose custody of his two girls because he had been fighting at the time with Portia and her mother over custody when this happened. This tends to back up Portia's version of events around that time as well because she told police she had been trying to get full custody at that time. 
The FBI spoke with Kathy's sister, Portia's other daughter. She said they were staying at Robert's mother's house at the time, their grandmother, and somehow ended up with Robert. Kathy's sister was not at Warren Dunes that day. The last time she saw her sister was when they were in the car with Robert Davidson, and he asked them who wanted to stay with their mother. Kathy's sister said that she did. She wanted to go home, and Kathy wanted to say yes, but she got scared and she didn't say anything. Robert told Kathy's sister, get out of the car and go find your mom, and then he pulled away and circled the block. She felt that it was several days later that Robert took her to her maternal grandmother's house. She does not remember Kathy being with them at that time. She remembers walking up the stairs to the door on the second floor where her grandmother lived and Robert saying to her, you will never see your sister again. According to her statement, as far as she knew, Kathy was okay at the time. No one ever told her what happened to her sister. Someone said she went missing and she recalled something about a picnic. She thought that the picnic was in Indiana. The only thing she knew about her sister Kathy's case was from reading about it in the newspaper. Kathy's sister described Anna as very controlling, and she said there was a lot of arguing. She remembered being grabbed and yanked around by Anna as a child. She did not feel that Anna liked her or Kathy. To her, it seemed like everyone in the house was safe except the children who were not Anna's by birth. Portia's interview with the FBI fills in some gaps, particularly about the state of her relationship with Robert at the time Kathy went missing and with her children. She and Robert were divorced prior to Kathy being born, but they continued their relationship until Kathy was two or three. Once they separated for good, Portia had custody of both girls. In the summer of 73, Portia was living in a house outside Chicago with her girls and her parents. She worked as a bartender at El Matador, and Robert Davidson lived about 20 minutes away and had not previously been a big part of their lives. Then he married Anna, who had several children of her own. At that time, he asked Portia if their daughters could spend the summer at his house. Because she knew that he got remarried, she let them go. They were six and nine at the time. She thought it would be good for them to spend more time with their father. At the end of that summer, the girls were to return home and start the new school year. At the end of August, Robert asked if they could stay with him for the first half of the school year. Kathy's sister told her mom that she wanted to come home. She did not want to stay at her dad's house anymore. Portia believed Kathy wanted to stay at her dad's house because she didn't say anything, so she allowed it, but she was to come home after one semester. Sadly, Kathy died before school even started. Now you might notice how this drastically differs from what Robert told police at the time Kathy went missing about what was going on with his children. He made it appear that since birth he had had the children, when in fact it appears he was trying to keep them longer than he should have per their agreement. Sometime after her older daughter returned home, Robert notified Portia that Kathy was missing. She was told that the family went to the Warren Dunes State Park in Michigan and that Anna and Robert called the children for lunch and everyone but Kathy returned. She mentioned how her boss at the El Matador rented a bus and filled it with volunteers to go to the state park and look for her daughter. Portia said that when she told her oldest daughter that her sister was missing, the little girl said, Daddy did it. Portia said that at the time, the FBI had interrogated her like she had done something wrong, like they thought she'd done something to Kathy. But she never had any knowledge of what happened, and in fact, 
she thought Kathy was still alive and out there somewhere until November of 2016 when Joy reached out to her. Prior to that, she did not believe her ex-husband could have been involved. She didn't even know Anna very well. They hadn't been together that long. And she only later learned that Anna had a history of child abuse. She said Robert had been abusive to her during their marriage, but she never expected him to kill a child. She felt that he covered up for Anna. But she does point to that one concerning comment that he made. You'll never see your sister again. Marvin Bobo's sister was interviewed by the FBI and what they got from her was a story that she said Marvin told her just months after Kathy disappeared. He said that there had been an accident. He stopped by the Davidson's house and found the bathroom door closed. He could see feet under the door as if whoever was in the bathroom was kneeling down. He opened the door and he saw Robert and Anna trying to revive the little girl. They had put her in cold water in the tub. Marvin said that the girl had been bound and gagged while she was in the closet. He said that she was then put in a suitcase and buried in Harvey, Illinois. And when he told this story, there were other people present who backed up the telling of this story. His sister admitted that Marvin had been using drugs at that time in his life, so he might not be telling the full truth. She also verified that he was likely extorting Robert and Anna for money to support his habit in exchange for not going to authorities. She said that he did talk to police about Kathy and he led them to a spot where she was supposed to have been buried, but that in the end he had led them to a different location, deciding that he did not want to incriminate himself. Marvin and Anna's brother Grady was interviewed in 2017. He had also lived at the House of Prayer. Grady said that he knew nothing about what happened to Kathy because he lived in Detroit with his sister at the time. He said that Robert Davidson was a pastor at the House of Prayer in Florida. He didn't know anything about Kathy passing away, and he didn't believe it. He characterized Anna as a Christian and virtuous woman, and the type of person who believed in God and always reached out to help. He said that he had no idea why Joy was saying what she was saying, and he called her a spoiled, demanding, and controlling person, ironically using a couple words that many have used to describe Anna Davidson. This is the person, by the way, who helped Mother Anna hold Nikki down into the scalding hot water in the metal tub. He had been the one to fetch the scalding water from outside and pour it into the tub. So essentially, he was the one who set the tap at the scalding temperature to fill the water buckets in the first place. Nice guy, huh? There's another thing I want to talk about here that puts a finer point on the depravity associated with the House of Prayer. Remember those hidden spaces at the House of Prayer? that Brother James and his mother, Sister Rebecca, described as having been told to hide in to avoid being found when the authorities searched the house, and that closet that little Moses was found in. That closet was Anna and Robert's own closet. 
What kind of a sick individual creates a hiding place in their own personal closet? After one of their children died in a closet, after being brutally disciplined and put there? What goes through the head of someone who does that? Even if you want to ascribe to the notion that Kathy Davidson's death was an accident due to excessive discipline, how do you then defend these same people creating an even more brutal environment where the same acts are repeated and put one of those punishment areas in your own bedroom? How do you sleep at night in a bed across the room from where a child is being held and starved? I wonder if they heard baby Moses or baby Luke scratching and crying in the closet like Kathy's stepsister did. Now what I'd like to do is compare some witness statements. One's from the kids, in fact. First, their 1973 statements, what they told police in Michigan, and then what they told the FBI today. The FBI met with Joy's sister, in 2017. She was 14 years old when Kathy went missing. Just to refresh your memory, here's what she previously told police in 73. She wasn't sure if she came in the green or the orange car, but it was the one that the 17-year-old family friend drove to the park. In the car with her was her brother and the young girl who was not her sibling, but was the daughter of one of Anna's previous husbands. They came directly from Chicago with no stops. When they arrived, she took a bag out of the trunk. She said her six-year-old brother and Kathy had already gone down the hill to the beach. She doesn't know who was the last to see her, but she feels that her uncle Marvin and the other six-year-old were the first to begin looking for Kathy when she didn't come for supper. She said Kathy had no toys or money, nothing she'd go back to the car to get, and that Kathy was wearing the sky blue shorts and a white blouse and her hair was in French braids. She said Kathy did not swim and probably wouldn't go in without somebody with her. In 2017, she told the FBI that Anna was her biological mother. She said she remembered some of what happened, the kids being called up the hill to eat and Kathy not being there, her mother telling the kids to go back and look for her, and she and her mother checking the bathrooms. She said the last time she saw Kathy was with all the children near the beach area but she couldn't pinpoint when Kathy wasn't with them anymore. She didn't remember much about driving there, but she did remember driving back with her cousin, who was related to her on her mom's side, and that would be the young man who drove his own vehicle. She also remembered her mom and her stepdad staying at the sand dunes to continue looking while she and the other kids went back to Chicago. She said that prior to Kathy's disappearance, she had only lived with them for about six months, and she stayed in the same room with her. She did remember that Kathy's sister had gone back to live with her mother. I just want to say here that there's only one of the children that likely doesn't know anything, and that's the other six-year-old. He would remember the actions, like what he saw, and like looking for her and then being called to eat, because that did happen. Anna and Robert created the whole visual subterfuge for everyone that was on the beach that day. They manipulated the action to make it appear that's what happened. So I guess it's possible that some of the kids who up to that point never saw Kathy dead could have trundled through their day and jumped into the car and thought Kathy was in the vehicle with Robert and Anna, as they said. But that charade crumbles when those same kids 
start to say that they saw Kathy on the beach when she was never there. If you wanted to play devil's advocate, you then have to ask yourself how did they not miss Kathy from the time she died and her body was taken away until that day at the dunes. Did this all occur in one weekend or days apart? It's possible that if the death occurred that weekend and they went to the park on the same weekend or even the same day, they didn't miss her because they thought she came out of the closet after her punishment and just didn't see her before they left for the beach. There are a lot of kids in that house, and we can't know how the visuals were manipulated for the littlest child who was more apt to fold under police questioning. Maybe they were told to stay in their rooms during critical times in that timeline. Maybe they were told Kathy was downstairs in the basement at certain times of the day, while they were elsewhere in the house, and suddenly it was morning and they were being rushed into the car and getting ready for an exciting day at the beach. What I'm trying to say is that it's possible that some of the kids didn't see a dead sibling or understand what was happening until they got to the beach or until they were sat down and told what to say. After that point, they would have to know for sure. But think of it this way. They would all have certain pieces of the puzzle, what they individually saw and heard that day. But they most certainly were all on that beach that day when Kathy was not. You know the lengths to which parents will go to make sure our little ones believe in Santa? I remember being very little one Christmas Eve and hearing sleigh bells on our roof. You've never seen four kids scatter and run to bedrooms so fast. Even my cousins, who didn't live there. Get in bed before Santa sees you're awake, our parents all yelled. My cousins and I, we hit the deck. We didn't want to risk not getting any presents if Santa saw us awake. I have a vivid recollection of holding it all night. I had to pee so bad, but I wouldn't leave that bed for fear of running into Santa. I learned years later that my dad and my uncle had gone up on the roof to ring those bells so we'd get to sleep because they had to put together one of our outside toys. You know, the kind that require tools and a few glasses of eggnog to put together. You see, it's all about perception. I'm going to suggest that with the little boy, at least, he may honestly not know about the subterfuge. I'm also going to go out on a limb and suggest that the older ones, the teenagers, they know. They know and they're lying to continue the charade. Maybe they cannot bear to be thought of as the kids whose mother did such horrible things. Maybe they don't want to believe. Maybe they just don't want anyone else to know. I can't guess what's going on in their minds. But they know, and I think it's important that they know we know. Another thing that Kathy's stepsister, the 14-year-old girl at the time, told police was that the cousin that she drove home with had been living with them at the time. And that cousin, he did end up talking. We'll get to that in a bit because it's important, but he did not live with them at the time. He had for a while, but he had actually just stopped by for a visit that day. And I imagine that years later, he wishes he had never gone by the Davidson house that day. But we do know that this step-sibling, the 14-year-old girl, she does know what happened. She described hearing Kathy scratching from inside that closet and it going on all night. That's the one detail she told behind the scenes that gives her false story to police away. It's a sense memory. One of those things that you are not likely to forget because it involves one of the senses, in this case a sound, combined very likely with fear. So she knows 
and we know she knows. And shame on her for not being honest with police when the remains of a little girl are still out there somewhere. Shame on any of them who know and continue to lie. So let's talk about the 15-year-old at the time. He said that he had traveled to the park in the orange car, and when they arrived, the first thing he did was run down the hill and sit on the sand and look at the water. He wasn't sure who was the last one to see Kathy. He just said that she was missed at supper and they all went to look for her. He also described her as wearing a white top, blue shorts, and white shoes. He said Kathy's hair was in French braids like the picture Anna had provided. And he said Kathy did not know how to swim, but she had been in the lake before and thinks that she would have taken her shoes off to go in. He did not know if Kathy knew her way around the park, but he said that they'd been there before and they were there a couple days before Labor Day weekend. He told police in 1973 his personal feeling was that Kathy had been abducted. When he was interviewed by the FBI in 2017, he said that Kathy had not lived with their family very long and that Robert and his mother had only been married for about a year. He couldn't remember how many vehicles they took or who rode with who, but that it was Robert who introduced his family to the Warren Dunes. He couldn't remember if it was a planned event or a spur of the moment, but day trips to the dunes were common for them. He felt like it wasn't long after they got there that Kathy went missing. They had parked on a hill, which was a spot that they had been to before, and they all got out of the car, and a short time later, their parents were asking where Kathy was. He recalled Marvin Bobo being there, but he couldn't remember if he had come up there originally or came to help search for her. He said that nothing had happened to Kathy at their house, and he wasn't sure why Joy would say that his siblings said something had occurred there. He thought Joy was lying and that it was a shame she was putting the family through this. He said that without a doubt, Kathy rode with the family to the dunes, but nowhere in either of his statements does he say anything about specifics regarding where and when he saw her on the beach that day. The next person who was interviewed in 2017 was the brother who was 12 years old at the time. What he said back in 73 was that he came in the orange car and his brother was driving. Kathy was in the green car with her parents. He said he also ran down the hill when they arrived, but he didn't have any swimming trunks. He said he last saw Kathy by the sand at the creek, and when they went to look for Kathy, his parents went to the concession area, and everyone else went around in all directions asking people on the beach if they had seen her. He gave the same description, white blouse, blue shorts, and white sandals with her hair and braids. In 2017, he told police that he thought this was all happening because of his sister, Joy. He said she and Anna had a contentious relationship for 20 years, most of the issues stemming from them having different opinions on how to raise Joy's kids. He insisted that he was certain Kathy was on the trip to Michigan that day, but details were hard to recall because it was so long ago. He thought Kathy went missing at the end of the day after they spent the day at the dunes. He couldn't recall if Marvin Bobo had gone, but he did say that he and Robert were in the joint together. He said Marvin did time for a bank robbery and had drug problems. He said the family used to hear rumors that Kathy was spotted after she went missing and that they went to the dunes to look for her over two years after she disappeared with no luck. He said that Anna was not overly abusive and was incapable of seriously hurting anyone. The first thing I want to point out that he said when he was 12 years old was that he didn't have any swimming trunks, which seems odd to me if they're going on a trip to go swimming. I'll just leave that there. You can make of that what you will. 
At the end of his questioning, the agent advised him that lying to an FBI agent who was conducting official duties was a crime, and they asked him to take a polygraph, which he refused. The next witness is critical because she was the only child still living at the house that was not a blood relative of Anna or Robert. She was 16 at the time and the daughter of one of Anna's previous husbands. She also came to the park in the orange car, which is interesting. Here's what she said in 1973. Kathy was in the green Torino with her parents. They did not stop anywhere on the way from Chicago. When they arrived, she ran down the hill, then went to help set up the picnic lunch. She last saw Kathy by the swamp or creek area. Kathy was wearing blue shorts, a white blouse, and white shoes. She said her hair was in French braids like her mother. She thought Kathy would have taken her shoes off to go in the water, but she could not swim. When she was asked if she had anything else to add, she said that the white panties found by searchers were just like hers, and they checked the house, and Kathy's weren't there. When the FBI talked to her in 2017, she told them that she lived at the Davidson house until she was 18 and then she moved away. She said that Anna had been married to her birth father and she moved to Chicago with him. After he left, she stayed with Anna because she was made to believe that her father would abuse her. She didn't know any better at the time, so she stayed with Anna. She characterized Anna as an abusive parent. She received beatings with a whip, head slaps, and was verbally abused by Anna. She was basically made to be the babysitter for the young kids. She would go to school, come home and do homework, then take care of the younger kids for Anna. She said she lived in fear because she wasn't sure what each day would bring. She remembered tutoring and caring for Kathy. She remembered that Kathy had not completed some minor task that Anna asked her to do, so that day she was punished by being placed in the linen closet. Kathy was left there for several hours, and she has a recollection of her being let out several times because she was having trouble breathing. She herself let Kathy out of the closet and was beaten by Anna as punishment for doing so. Kathy was then put back in the closet, and she was sent to her room in the basement. The next morning she got up and found that Kathy had been taken out of the closet but was unresponsive, so they placed her into a tub of cold water in an attempt to revive her. This corroborates what Marvin Bobo said he witnessed as well. When the agents asked her if she actually saw Kathy dead, she said that she saw Kathy in the tub, she saw them trying to revive her, and that was the last she ever saw of Kathy. After that, she said, the children were ordered back to their rooms, and she does not know what happened. So there you have it. Children were ordered back into their rooms, meaning there were some children that may have been out there and witnessed something. That might explain why some of the kids never even saw anything that morning, since she said she only learned about Kathy when she woke up. Now remember, the other 14-year-old girl, Anna's biological daughter, also said that she heard the scratching all night, and then she saw the closet ajar when she woke. But Kathy was still in the closet at that point, according to what she told her sister curled up in the fetal position. This is where the timeline begins to come together. The woman who had been Anna's stepdaughter, the 16-year-old, and lived there at the time, said Marvin came over to the house the next day, and he and Anna and Robert had a discussion, but none of the children were allowed to be involved. What the kids were told, in a group, as she recalled, was that they were going to a park 
and they were going to pretend that Kathy was there and that she got lost and that if they did not go along with the story, they would be punished. She said it was Anna who sat them down and told them what to say. She felt that if she didn't say what they wanted her to say, she would be killed too. She had been punished so many times by Anna that she was afraid for her life and she wasn't about to go against what Anna told them to say, especially after what happened with Kathy. After that, it was such a blur, she said, she didn't even remember talking to law enforcement, despite the fact that all the children were questioned. She couldn't remember if Marvin Bobo was on the trip over with the family and doesn't remember much of the trip over. She said she was in shock and in horror, especially after they were all forced to search for Kathy, knowing that they would never find anything because Kathy never made the trip with them. She said that Marvin and Robert Davidson had already decided what to do with Kathy's body before the trip to Michigan, but she wasn't sure how long after her death and the trip to Michigan occurred. She said she remembered Kathy's mouth being tied with a rag or something because she was crying so much. She said that while Anna was abusive toward her, she wasn't sure if she was abusive with the other children. She just remembered being afraid every day because of Anna's moods. She characterized her as a ruthless stepmother. When asked if she or any of the other kids discussed with each other what was going on, she said no, they didn't discuss anything. They just did what they were told. Afterward, Anna told them that if they had to talk with teachers or anyone about it, to tell them as little as possible. Just say we can't find her and we don't know anything, Anna told them. This girl, now a woman, remembered Anna yelling at Kathy a lot and calling her names, despite how little she was. And she characterized Anna as being in control of everything and Robert not having control over anything. She said that Anna was allowed to abuse her and Kathy and to discipline her own children and Robert wasn't allowed to say anything. This may have been because Robert wasn't around much. I was told by one family member that he was always out doing drugs and cheating on Anna. Multiple witnesses said that Anna disciplined her own children much less harshly. Police asked this woman if any of the siblings had contacted her prior to speaking with them, and she said, no, I haven't been contacted by anyone. Her story was told independent of any interaction with any of them, including Joy. She had never heard from anyone. She ended her statement by saying that the children may not know where Kathy was buried, but they sure did know she was dead and did not make the trip to Michigan. One thing I want to point out as I go through all these interviews is something that I found rather curious, and that was there was not a single interview with Marvin Bobo in the police reports that I received. Based on the interviews that I read, I could not even get a sense of whether he did go with them that day or whether he came later to help search. As the story of Kathy Davidson's murder began to come together through these statements, Anna Davidson, young, was arrested in Florida on December 1st, 2017, and charged with one count of first-degree murder for the little boy they call Moses. But there was one interview done the month before that would prove to be extremely important to understanding Kathy's case. 
Remember in 1973, the 17-year-old boy who was there that day? The one who drove his own car? He was no relation to the Davidsons, but they called him a cousin? Here's a recap of his statement. He was in the gold Renault, and they stopped nowhere on the way. He said he came along on the spur of the moment after coming to the Davidsons' house on a visit, and he learned of the picnic. He didn't want to get stuck at the park if he decided to leave before the rest of them, so he drove his own car. When they arrived, he helped get the food out of the car along with a couple of the other kids. He walked down to the bench picnic area via the stairs, and he last saw Kathy about 25 to 30 feet away from the creek. He said when she didn't come to supper, everyone started to look. He said that he and Anna's 12-year-old son took the path around to the south and met Ranger Stilson and told him of the missing child. About that time, they heard the announcement over the loudspeaker. He said the picnic was set up about 12 feet up the side of the sand hill, and he described how they had leaned different bottles and items against the big tree. He felt that they were sort of hidden in that spot, but he could see people around them. He said Kathy was wearing a white cotton blouse, white shoes, and she might not take them off to go in the water. He said that he never saw Kathy swim in the lake, but he had seen the other six-year-old playing in the lake. He didn't know if Kathy knew the area, but she had been to the park before. At the end of his statement, he had added that Debbie had ID'd the picture of Kathy, and this was still on his mind. Now here's what police learned when they interviewed him in 2017. This young man's parents were deceased, and that's how he found himself living for a time with Anna and Robert Davidson in Chicago. His mother was more or less considered Anna's aunt. He said he lived with them from when he was 15 or 16, and in 1973 he was 18 and living with his girlfriend. On the weekends, he would go back to the Davidson's house on South Hermosa and pick up his mail and visit. Sometimes he would stay for the weekend. The weekend before the ruse at Warren Dunes, he had come to the house and he didn't see Robert, but Anna was there. He asked her how the kids were doing. When he asked Anna where Kathy was, she acted like she had forgotten about her and she said she was in a linen closet in the hallway. When Anna let her out, Kathy was disoriented and lightheaded. Anna told him Kathy was being disciplined. He said he had not been disciplined like that and he didn't see any of the other children have that done to them. But he did recall saying what he would call extensive whippings. He said he left that day and he came back the next weekend, which would have been Labor Day weekend. Anna had apparently put Kathy back into the closet for discipline again. Or maybe she had been there all week. That part is unclear and frankly horrifying to even imagine. So again, he's talking to Anna and she mentions Kathy's name and says, oh, I forgot Kathy. He said she went to the closet. Anna started screaming, and he thinks it was Robert who got her out of the closet. He thought he remembered Anna, Marvin Bobo, and Robert and himself in the basement, and Anna saying that she was ready to go to jail, and Marvin and Robert were saying they had to do something about getting rid of the body. He believed this all happened in the morning and the other kids were asleep. He believes Marvin Bobo and Robert were either just getting to the house when he arrived, or they were there just after his arrival because he recalls Robert being the one to take Kathy out of the closet. He said they brought her downstairs, where he was in the basement, and out through the back window. He said she was in a plaid garment bag. He said Robert drove his green Ford Torino up to the window, and they passed her through the basement window. He said they left with her body, and wherever they went, in his mind they were only gone 20 or 25 minutes. 
He knew they were just a few blocks away from the I-57 expressway, so he thought maybe they disposed of her in a nearby dump. He said that Anna told him she needed him to stay, to help them stage the story that Kathy was lost at the sand dunes. When they asked him if he actually saw this happen, he said yes, he saw the bag and he saw them pass it out the window. He didn't actually see Kathy in the bag, but that it was a very serious moment and he had no doubt that she was inside it. He had seen her dead at the house before she went in the bag, and that was on Anna and Robert's bed in the bedroom. Robert had taken her out of the closet to his room. Now, here is where the investigator mentioned that police had received an anonymous letter a few years after Kathy disappeared, and that it had included details that he just described. They asked the man if it was him that wrote the letter, and he said yes, it was him. Why? the investigator asked. He said he thought for sure police would have continued the investigation, that someone would have cracked, because Anna's children might not want to admit it, but they all know what happened. He said he even thought the six-year-old at the time would know. He was the same age as Kathy, and the one thing I always keep asking myself is how he did not know Kathy wasn't with them if he rode in the car with his parents where Kathy was supposed to be. If he remembers anything, does he remember that his sister was not with them in the car that day? As his parents alleged? This man said he thought for sure that police would have kept track of the kids over the years and kept at them. This man remembered that Marvin and Anna had a falling out later, and she told him that if Marvin ever told what happened, they would say Marvin did it. It was their plan to pin it on him. He said that Anna kept track of Marvin when he moved, and he figured that they did that to prevent him from telling. He said that Anna was mad at him at the time because he'd just leave the house and he wouldn't give her his phone number or where he could be reached, and she didn't like that. He told the investigator that he felt like police had just considered Kathy another black girl statistic. The investigator told him how long the investigation had gone on and that they had worked on it until about 1980 and how Anna and Robert had run a lot of interference during the initial investigation. So there were inconsistencies in the stories of the children and the Davidsons. Like not a single beachgoer at Warren Dunes that day remembered any six-year-old black girl on the beach at all. Even Robert Davidson himself said that. No other black folks on the beach that day, but he remembered seeing, quote, a heavy-built black woman and a child on the beach the next day. Nobody, not a single person outside the Davidson family, witnessed a little African-American girl of Kathy's age on the beach at the southern end where the Davidsons said they were when Kathy went missing. And that's because there wasn't one. Every witness statement, except for the family members, supports this. Obviously, all of the children telling police they stopped nowhere on the way, but Robert and Anna saying they stopped for chicken and some hot stuff at a small store on 159th Street is a huge inconsistency. And then there's the coaching in their statements, which is obvious and it's backed up by the two non-family witnesses, Anna's young stepdaughter and the 17-year-old who would eventually write the anonymous note. Both of them mentioned being told what to say and to play along with the ruse and both of them said it was Anna who coached them. And both of them said that it wasn't just them either. 
And here's something else. Not a single child remembered playing with Kathy before she went missing. Are we to believe one of the youngest children was off by herself and none of her older siblings were with her? Are we to believe that the parents let a six-year-old wander off alone? Well, Anna's little six-year-old son himself offered what I would consider one of the most important clues to Anna and Robert's lies. When he spoke to police, he told them that he went with his parents where they set up the picnic and he did not go down to play in the water. Which makes sense, right? I wouldn't let my six-year-old go down to the water unattended, particularly with a group of siblings, mostly teens, none of which admitted in their statements to being asked to keep an eye on Kathy down by the water. In fact, most of them could not even be specific as to where she was last seen. So even if you believed their stories about her being there, they were not paying much attention to their very young sibling. Why is that? Why would they take one child with them, Anna and Robert, one six-year-old, as they set up the picnic, and let the other one go down by the water? It makes sense that Anna and Robert would keep the youngest child with them, as the little boy himself said. And it wouldn't make sense, if they did that, to go ahead and let Kathy, who was the same age, go down to the water with her siblings. I believe that little boy. He told police he went with his parents. He wasn't down in the water. Anna even said in one of her statements that he and Kathy rode with them in their car because, quote, they played hard together and she needed to keep an eye on them. Later, Anna's sister would admit that Marvin Bobo said the little six-year-old boy was the one child that Anna and Robert were concerned about saying something to police that would tip them off. As it turns out, that little boy being honest when police asked him a simple question in that interview where even police thought that they had not gotten anything of value is actually one of the pieces of evidence that points to his parents' lies. I suspect he does not remember much from that day, not anymore. He's probably the only sibling who doesn't. He was the only one who was young enough at the time that he might not. And there's something else that bothers me about this little boy, at least as far as Anna is concerned, and that is how she used him. How, when police had contacted her weeks later to see if there was any new information, she said that the only new piece of information she was able to get was this little boy telling her that he specifically remembered Kathy stomping her feet in the water. No, he didn't. He didn't say that, and he didn't see it. That's bullshit. That is a manipulative woman using the youngest surviving sibling to try and put Kathy in the water in the hopes that it would make the police think she drowned. And shame on her for using that little boy in that way. Tossing another child under the bus by attributing words to him that he never said. He did what was right. He told police the truth that day. He did not go down to the water. And good for him for being the only honest family member that day. Good for him. Out of the mouths of babes, they say. I don't know if it's worth pointing out, but I'm going to do it anyway, because that's my job. There's still time. 
For a few people, there is still time to make something right. So I'm going to give them my final pitch. Had she not been murdered, Kathy Davidson may have been my friend. She was only born two years before me. She may have been your neighbor. You know, that neighbor. The one who gives your kid an orange or an apple to eat when he gets home before you and finds himself locked out of the house after getting off the bus. She may have worked with adults with special needs and been the one person who understood the man who didn't have the ability to understand himself. She may have held your father's hand as he took his last breath while her own feet ached because she had just done a double shift at the hospital. She may have sung in the church choir, maybe even a little off-key, but with eyes that sparkled with such joy, it made up for it. She may have been many things to many people, but she never got that chance because the people who were supposed to care for her the most didn't seem to care for her at all. She was six years old, and she died on the floor of a linen closet in the sweltering heat as family members listened to her scratch on the closet door all night long. God, what must she have thought? All those hours she spent in that closet, which were probably more like days based on the witness statements. What did I do wrong? Did she ask herself that as she cried? Don't they love me? Was she wondering that as hour by hour went by with no relief? Why won't they help me? She had to have wondered as she lay there with her mouth covered because Anna didn't want her to make any noise. Six years old. She was six years old. Kathy Davidson did not die due to excessive punishment. There is no sane person alive who believes putting a child in a closet for days and not feeding them is punishment. That's torture. And the result was murder. Kathy Davidson was murdered. And shame on anyone who utters a single syllable to suggest otherwise. And shame on anyone who knows where that child is and decides to go to their grave with that secret. Secrets and shame. It's a nasty combination. One last thing about secrets. I want to talk about a bathtub for a minute. The House of Horrors really was a house of horrors, some of which were only discovered years later when investigators started questioning various people who had been hired by subsequent owners to work on the place. One described it as a very strange place with lots of add-ons and additions. Another contractor said he had found something he called really weird. What I would call it is evidence. The man had discovered a fully functional bathroom, which had been walled in and abandoned inside the main house. So picture this. You have a bathroom with all the fixtures in working order, 
but the bathroom is closed in somehow. It had no door or window. It had been completely sealed off, and it was only discovered when they were knocking in walls. Inside this hidden bathroom was a cast iron enamel bathtub, which he described as having been etched with marks below the waterline. He said the rest of the tub was smooth porcelain, but the bottom was pitted. The entire bottom of the tub had been changed in texture. I checked with someone who lived there who recalled two bathrooms in the main house downstairs. One of them had a tub that fit that description. Whatever happened in that bathtub, the contractor said, had changed the surface qualities of the tub's enamel and was eaten. My first thought was of Nikki, who had been forced to bathe in the toxic substance and scalding water, and who later died. Had that toxic substance not only eaten through her skin, but also the surface of the tub? And then I realized, no, that's not it. The tub she had been put in had been described as an oblong metal tub, and photos of the scene depict that tub. It's metal. It is not an enamel bathtub. It is a metal tub. Something about that tub kept niggling at me. And it comes from the police reports of Nikki's abuse with the scalding, bleachy water. One of the reports notes that on July 28, 1992, detectives went to the House of Prayer to interview Mother Anna. During her questioning, they have her go over what occurred, and she describes the point when they return from taking the church member to the doctor, and she tells Nikki she has to take a bath. She said the girl had a habit of running the bath water but not taking a bath. So that suggests that they have, or had at some point, a tub with running water into it. But the metal tub was not that tub. Because they had to get that from outside. The metal tub did not have a drain. It had to be filled from water outside. Anna then describes telling Brother Timothy to go out and get the tin tub from outside. Remember, this is Grady Bobo, Anna's brother. Then she told him to go get the water. The report notes, quote, According to Mother Anna, they had hot and cold water outside the residence. Anna thought Brother Timothy made two or three trips with the water bucket while she was in the bathroom. The door was open, and they were waiting on him to put the water in. She put the Ultra Tide and bubble bath into the water and told Nikki to undress. She wanted her to get into the shower afterwards so she could rinse her off. She said that she washes her hair in the shower. Nikki asked her to leave so she could just shower because the bathroom had a shower, and Anna refused and said she was going to, quote, give her an old-timey bath. So they had to bring a tub into the bathroom from outside, into a bathroom that already had a shower in it. If you have running water inside and another bathroom working with a tub, why would you be getting water from outside and bathing her in the metal tub? The report goes on to say that Anna told Nikki to get into the shower after the bath and she refused. Anna demanded that she get in or she was going to get a whipping. She explained to the girl that she could not rinse her off in this tub because there was no drain to let the water out, so she needed to rinse in the shower. Later in this report, it is noted that pictures were taken of that tub, and when they got there, the tub was outside and the police had them bring the tub into the bathroom in question so they could get pictures of it all to scale. According to people who lived at the house, they did have two bathrooms in the main house downstairs, at least at some point. And one did have a regular ceramic tub, according to another person who lived there. So why, that day, were they bathing Nikki 
1992 in a tub that required so much work to fill from water outside. Had the bathroom that the contractor later discovered already been walled in? According to law enforcement records, they believe Moses went missing between 88 and 89. And what occurred with Nikki and the bathtub happened in 92, right before Anna went missing to avoid prosecution. Was that bathroom walled in sometime prior to 1992? And if so, why? What happened in the hidden bathroom that made Anna have it walled off forever? I thought about those missing babies and what we know. Moses was believed to have been burned in that burn barrel, according to all the testimony. And baby Luke, he was the one that his mother insisted had been taken to Puerto Rico and disposed of. But Puerto Rican authorities could never find any evidence of that. What if... What if... Could a body be disposed of in a tub? A little body, maybe? Is there any substance that could eat away any sign of life? If there is, I suspect that that kind of substance would damage the surface of the tub and eat away the enamel. Something happened in that bathroom. Something bad enough that they wanted the entire room to disappear. What other possible reason would you wall off an entire working bathroom? What kind of liquid would eat away the enamel on a tub? I'm asking this question of my husband while we're sitting on the front porch having a beer. He looks at me funny. He always looks at me funny when I ask him stuff involving what he has stubbornly dubbed my murder shit. I repeated the question, and his response was, Hell if I know. Then I explained the walled-off bathroom and why I was asking while he finished his cigarette. He was staring at an area in the yard where I had just asked him to dig a hole for a plant that I wanted to put out there. As he slid his chair back and went to stand up to set about the task, he said, My dad used to clean carburetors in acid. His dad was a mechanic back in the day in the Bronx. He had his own shop. Wait, what? I probably said it a little too loudly. He told me they had used a metal hook to dunk the carburetor in the acid. In his words, it'd come up brand spanking new, eats away the paint and everything. But what would it do to the pipes under a house if you put it down the drain? He thought about that for a second, probably having flashbacks to his own recent foray under our old house after we had a pipe leak beneath our bathroom. Maybe nothing if they were metal pipes, I don't know. PVC pipes wouldn't be pretty, though. Was the house old like ours? I nodded, already thinking about something I didn't want to think about. And I did the research, but I'm not going into the details here because the idea of discussing this with regard to the bodies of babies is just too much, even for me. If you're curious, you can let Google be your guide. Suffice it to say that lye is even easier to get than strong acids. You can buy about eight pounds of it, enough to dissolve a few bodies from soap-making or farm supply stores for less than 20 bucks. And, if you'll recall, they did have some sort of farm store near there. They talked about it in Jonah Young's death investigation. He had gone there that day, remember? There were items in his car that he had picked up that day, and it was from some sort of farm and feed store. Anyway... I'm going to leave you with that tub because it's one of the things that I have been left with after all of this. After all the abuse. All the injustice. All the lies. 
What happened to that tub? And where's Kathy Davidson? There are people, I am certain, who know the answer to both of these questions. If this was ever about God, if there's any good in the people who know these things, they will pick up the phone one day or send an email or tell someone in a position to do something about it what they know. Anything short of that is just plain selfish. You guys, all of you out there listening to my voice right now, and this is not just about this case, but don't be that person. Don't be the person who secrets away information that can give someone else some peace. Be better than that. Be more generous of heart than that. Sometimes that's all we have, you know? That reliance on someone else to lift that burden, however big or small. Be the burden lifter. I promise you, it will lift some of your burdens too. Thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate all of your kind words and reviews. I will see you next season. Well, actually, you'll hear me next season, whatever. Thank you.